Welcome to the Frontline Gastroenterology Podcast, based on the paper, Curriculum Review, Investigation and Management of Dysphagia, published online in Frontline Gastroenterology in August 2021. My name is Dr. Philip Smith. I'm the Social Media and Associate Editor of Frontline Gastroenterology, and a consultant gastroenterologist at the Royal Liverpool Hospital in Liverpool, the United Kingdom. And I extend a very warm welcome to Dr. Gurav Nigam, who's an academic clinical fellow in gastroenterology in the Oxford Deanery, United Kingdom. Dr. Nigam, thank you so much for joining me today to do this podcast on this very important area. Although many senior gastroenterologists may feel that this is well bread and butter in terms of GI medicine, I think it's incredibly important that we all remain up to date and go back to first principles. That's why this curriculum review for me is so important. This leads me to my first question for you um, on your paper. Can you remind me and the listeners of the definition of dysphagia and how you distinguish it from other swallowing problems? And can you also remind us on the phases of swallowing, please? Thank you, Dr. Smith, uh, for having me on this podcast. Uh, at the outset, I would like to thank Dr. Dipesh Vasant, consultant gastroenterologist at Withenshaw Hospital in Manchester, and Professor Anjan Dhar, consultant gastroenterologist at Darlington Memorial Hospital for supervising this curriculum review. Coming to your first question, as you've mentioned, dysphagia is a commonly encountered issue in day-to-day gastroenterology practice. As a gastroenterology trainee, a sound understanding of the basics seems to be very important to me. In simple terms, dysphagia is defined as a subjective awareness of a difficulty in the passage of food anywhere from the oral cavity to the stomach. It may overlap with two other symptoms, namely odynophagia, which is defined as painful swallowing, or globus, which is a persistent or intermittent non-painful sensation of a lump, a retained food bolus, or tightness in the throat. Briefly, swallowing is divided into three anatomical phases. The first phase is the oral phase, which begins with mastication of food and a bolus formation. This is followed by the oropharyngeal phase with propulsion of the bolus into the pharynx and protective closure of the nasopharynx by elevation of the soft palate and the closure of the larynx by the epiglottis. And finally, the esophageal phase, where the bolus is transferred to the stomach via a relaxed lower esophageal sphincter. Any anatomical or physiological dysfunction related to any stages of the swallowing can lead to dysphagia. Thank you. That's a really helpful overview um, of the areas that I've, I've questioned you on. So thank you very much. In your review, you do describe an approach to dysphagia um, using a very helpful figure, I must say, and a table of differential diagnoses. Could you briefly give myself and the, the listeners there an overview of this? A detailed clinical history forms the basis for planning further investigations and management for any case presenting with dysphagia. As mentioned in the figure from our paper, the clinical history should essentially cover following main areas. The first step involves narrowing down the possible anatomical location in terms of oropharyngeal dysphagia versus oral dysphagia while differentiating it from globus. Oropharyngeal dysphagia typically occurs with initiation of swallowing and is associated with upper respiratory symptoms such as postnasal drip, cough on swallow, and generally patients points toward their neck as side for symptoms. 
On the other hand, for oral dysphagia, the symptoms start after a few seconds of swallowing, can be associated with regurgitation of undigested food, and patients generally point towards suprasternal or retrosternal area as site for symptoms. While identifying the possible anatomical location, it is also essential to rule out globus, which presents as a persistent feeling of lump in the throat and is noted in between the meals, and patients do not essentially report a difficulty in swallowing. The next step after this is to identify underlying pathology based on predominant symptoms with food type. Dysphagia to solids only is suggestive of a structural or mechanical obstruction, and dysphagia to liquids only or both solids and liquids is suggestive of underlying motility disorders. To identify specific disorders, the history should then focus on nature of progression of symptoms as to whether it is intermittent or non-progressive or progressive. Further history should then focus on associated features including heartburn, regurgitation, weight loss, anemia, other systemic features, past medical history with specific attention to neurological disorders, diabetes and or rheumatological conditions. A detailed history of the intake of medications that might affect esophageal motility or predisposed to reflux or candidiasis including non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs, antibiotics, anticholinergics, sedatives, opiates, and bisphosphonates is also recommended. This can help us narrow down the differentials in terms of structural or motility disorders related to oropharyngeal or esophageal dysphagia and have been listed out in a table in our paper. Excellent. That's a fantastic overview. Thank you very much. Um, in your paper, you how do you choose what tests to investigate um, dysphagia, you describe it. Uh, and in fact, you've used a very nice picture in the paper to discuss it. Could you go through that for our listeners, please? The selection of appropriate investigations is based on a sound clinical history. The first step is to identify the possible anatomical location. If symptoms are suggestive of oropharyngeal dysphagia, a video fluoroscopy is a useful first step, along with appropriate referral to ear, nose and throat surgeons or neurologists and or speech and language therapists. For esophageal dysphagia, a gastroscopy with biopsies when indicated is the gold standard and often the first investigation carried out. However, the selection of additional investigations and timing of endoscopy can be decided based on associated symptoms. The Edinburgh dysphagia score, taking into consideration age, gender, weight loss, duration of symptoms, localization of dysphagia, and acid reflux can be used to categorize high-risk patients with a score greater than or equal to 3.5 to arrange two-week weight investigations to rule out cancer. For patients with significant reflux without red flag signs or symptoms, such as rapid progression of symptoms, weight loss, etc., can be considered for a proton pump inhibitor trial prior to arranging an endoscopy. If the gastroscopy along with esophageal biopsies are inconclusive, the next line of investigations can be selected based upon the predominant symptoms with food type. For dysphagia with solids only and suspected structural pathologies, barium swallow with various maneuvers can be extremely helpful. 
Barium swallow may be considered earlier in the algorithm when gastroscopy is not possible and or where structural disorders require further scrutiny. For example, if there's a history of prior upper GI surgery, previous exposure to radiotherapy, caustic injury or complex strictures, etc. For dysphagia with liquids only or both liquids and solids with suspected esophageal motility disorders, high resolution manometry is the gold standard for investigation. Fantastic overview again. Thank you very much. Um, in your paper, you touch on the different types of achalasia. And I think um, you, you use it um, particularly describing the use of esophageal manometry. As someone that's always needed reminding of these different subtypes, could you describe them to our listeners to uh, hopefully crystallize or remind people what the different subtypes are and how you recognize them? The findings of high-resolution esophageal manometry with colored pressure maps called Klaus plots forms the basis for classification of esophageal motility disorders as per the latest version 4 of Chicago classification. The esophageal motility disorders are divided into two groups. The first is disorders of esophagogastric junction outflow or OGJ outflow obstruction and the second disorders of peristalsis. Focusing on echelasia, which is a subtype of OGJ outflow disorders, it is associated with failure of the lower esophageal sphincter to relax in response to swallowing. The subclassification of achalasia is based upon the pattern of esophageal body motility on high-resolution esophageal manometry and includes three subtypes. Type 1 is characterized by failed esophageal peristalsis with failure of lower esophageal sphincter relaxation. Type 2 has a uniform non-propagating increase in esophageal pressure, that is pan-esophageal pressurization with failure of lower esophageal sphincter to relax. And finally, type 3 or spastic achalasia is characterized by premature vigorous contractions of the distal esophagus with failure of the lower esophageal sphincter to relax. The Klaus plots for these subtypes have been shown in our paper. The clinical responsiveness to the different treatment modalities appear to differ by achalasia subtype and therefore their recognition can guide treatment. Once again, Dr. Nigam, an excellent overview. Um, finally, in your excellent paper, you briefly describe the different treatment options available for dysphagia. Um, could you go through those um, for our listeners, please? The management of dysphagia involves a multidisciplinary team approach with inputs from speech and language therapists, dietitians, ENT surgeons, upper GI surgeons, and of course, gastroenterologists. The various treatment modalities include diet and nutrition. A focus on nutrition is essential for maintaining appropriate caloric intake, along with consideration of a change in consistency of food and use of enteral or parenteral form of feeding where appropriate. This must be carried out in consultation with speech and language therapists and dietitian colleagues. Furthermore, a two, four or six food empiric elimination diet with exclusion of wheat, milk, egg, nuts, soy, fish and shellfish may be considered as an anti-inflammatory treatment of eosinophilic esophagitis. As per recent AGA guidelines, elemental diet has also been conditionally recommended with moderate quality of evidence for management of EOE. Next comes pharmacological interventions. 
Based upon the underlying etiology, the treatment options include use of proton pump inhibitors for reflux esophagitis, EOE, etc. For patients with EOE not responding to PPIs, topical corticosteroids may be considered. Biologic agents in the form of anti-interleukin therapy have shown promise in early clinical trials for EOE and may be a future treatment option. Medical therapies for motility disorders include oral nitrates, calcium channel blockers, prokinetics but have limited efficacy and are often poorly tolerated. They may be considered while planning definitive therapy. Then there are the endoscopic interventions, which play an important role in the management of esophageal dysphagia. The treatment options range from esophageal dilatations for benign esophageal stricture and symptom relief for malignant stricture with bougie and balloon dilators, or pneumatic balloon dilatation for OGJ outflow disorders such as echelasia. Intraluminal steroid injections can be used for refractory benign esophageal strictures. Similarly, esophagian stenting may be used for benign refractory esophageal strictures or malignant strictures for symptom relief. Botulinum toxin injection may be considered in appropriately selected patients with OGJ outflow disorders. There have been further advances in endoscopic therapy and recently per oral endoscopic myotomy or POEM has been utilized to create a submucosal tunnel to perform lower esophageal sphincter myotomy with similar outcomes to laparoscopic Heller's myotomy. Where expertise is available, it can be considered as a first-line treatment for achalasia, particularly in type 3 achalasia where the length of the myotomy can be customized. Finally, there are surgical interventions with surgery having clear benefits for operable malignant cause of dysphagia. The utility of surgical interventions for benign disorders are limited to Heller's myotomy for management of achalasia and can be performed with a combined fundoplication to reduce post-myotomy reflux. Excellent and very thorough answer again. Thank you so much. And um, Dr. Nigam, I would like to say thank you again for doing this podcast today. I think it's been really useful, a really helpful overview of the management and investigation of dysphagia. Well done, and congratulations on your excellent paper again to you and your co-authors. To our listeners, um, the link to the paper is underneath this um, podcast, so do read the, the paper. It's excellent, really helpful for a frontline gastroenterologist. And, of course, do join us again in the future for further uh, Frontline Gastroenterology podcast and thank you for listening tonight.